0: Now, I'm going to continue with this um, series that I've been doing on spiritual warfare, although you might uh, think, well, what, how, uh, what we're going to look at applies today. But, um, but it was something that the Lord put upon my heart, and because the whole Bible is dealing with spiritual warfare all the time. And the effects of it, and the consequences of it, and uh, you know, there's a war that's raging in the heavenlies, and it's manifesting itself. And 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 the human heart is not immune to the effects that that uh, that are a result of our disobedience to God and our refusal to stand and fight the enemy as believers. And so, we're going to identify with some of those consequences today as we look. Um, at A certain aspect of the book of Ruth. And so we knew and we've heard how God warned Israel that if they would not obey him that they then, the consequence would be they would be unable to stand against their, the enemy. And the enemy would have, uh, have prevailed over them. And that's what we saw in the book of Judges on numerous occasions, right? We saw that they disobeyed God. And in doing so, God, they came into oppression. And then they humbled themselves and called on God. And God raised up a Deliverer. And we learned some of the spiritual lessons that are associated with some of those stories. And so, when you read the book of Judges, and I touched upon it before, the last verse says... Uh, uh, these sad words that uh, it says in those days, verse twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that is a sad indictment upon the nation, especially the, uh, as the the generations that are passing on in their obedience and to the Lord. But what is even more sad. Is the condition that in the state of Israel, when you read the last few chapters of the book of of Judges, it's quite disturbing. Have you ever read it and just kind of thought, whoa, this is kind of explicit? This is disturbing. And so, because, you know, in, in Judges 17, I think it is, uh, you'll find an introduction there, 18, where we begin to be uh, in, uh, introduced to a man named Micah and his idolatry and sets up an idol. And then that is adopted by the Danites, the, 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 the tribe of Dan. And then they set it up and they start worshipping this idol. And then before you know it, as is always in the case in Scripture, when, when there's idolatry that's being practiced, it always ends up manifesting itself in sexual immorality. And so you read about uh, a Levite who goes into, uh, into um, the tribe and stays there a night. And, and it, well, it turns out that there are those that come forth from Gibeah and uh, they abuse, sexually abuse his concubine. Anyway, that's what it says. And in, in, in doing so, they, they, they abuse her that night and she's uh, been ravaged, and that she, she actually dies. And then. The, the Levite, in, uh, to send a message to the rest of the na- nation of Israel, to the 12 tribes, he cuts her up into 12 pieces. <laughs> I said it was disturbing. all right. I know, but this is the scripture. He cuts her up limb by limb and he cuts her up into 12 pieces and he sends it express post. That's adding a little bit of modern day terms. But he distributes it amongst the children of Israel and he says... Uh, I know. Could you imagine receiving that? A body part? Like, what is going on? And so, uh, and then he's he, 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 obviously he's declaring to the nation what has happened and what needs to, what, what are we going to do about it? And then you read the story there and they, um, they go to war and, and whatever else and, and so forth. But again, again, we're, we're just dealing with the sorry state of the nation. And then we come to the last verse. And we hear that, and it's just like that's not what God intended. This is not God's plan. But you see, God always has a plan. Hallelujah. And isn't it interesting too that when you, I mean, you have uh, if you uh, if you go to First Samuel, you don't have to. I mean, I'm saying like after the book of Judges is the book of this little book of Ruth, and uh, and then you go into First. First Samuel, which is a continuation of the judges. And uh, you see that, uh, again, uh, there's, there's deep corruption. Um, uh, you, you know the story there where um, Eli's sons are killed because they, diso- they were disobedient to God and, ir- and irreverent. So they, God killed them and, and then the wife gave birth and she gave birth and she called it Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. I mean, this is how dark it is. This is how sad the situation is. And I say that because I'm setting the scene for the times of the book of Ruth. And even so, uh, I said God has a plan. Because if you read in, uh, there about Samuel, the prophet that, came, that was born and the circumstances there, it says that the, the, word, of the, law would, the word of the Lord was rare. In those days, and there was no widespread revelation of God. And before the lamp of the Lord went out, that's what it says. See, God was already at work. But God was not only at work in Samuel. We have in here a little book that's called the book of Ruth. That's four chapters. And in the midst of that, we see that it doesn't matter how dark it is. God is going to fulfill his purpose and his plan. And Ruth gives us a glimpse of that. And so the book of Ruth is a wonderful little piece of writing that is that, that 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 just shows us that where man fails, God never fails. And so it's filled with typology. It is a wonderful, rich study in really the plan of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in its allegorical and typological references that are contained within the book, outside of its literal um, uh, trans, you know, uh, little story. But, and I'm, we don't have the time to go through that, and I'm just kind of mentioning those things to just highlight it. But it's a story that captures, its, well, it's it predominantly about a, a lady, a Gentile woman, a Moabite, named Ruth. And so it's about a, a, a Gentile woman who has faith in God and as a result of her faith in God, God takes this Gentile woman, this Moabite, and he grafts her into the very lineage of Jesus Christ. She marries a man by the name of Boaz and, uh, uh, and she, uh, um, she has a child uh, to him and she's actually, I think, the, is it the great-grandmother or grandmother? One, uh, one of the two to King David himself and then through the lineage to Jesus Christ, this Gentile woman. So even in the midst of all that's going on in Israel, God is still working out and she was grafted in and gave birth to the seed that God was going to bring forth through the woman and uh, ultimately to bring forth the Messiah to crush Satan's head. Now, I've said all that, but I want to consider in the book of Ruth, and I want to look at a particular person named Naomi and the family in chapter one. And I want to show you that when we fail in spiritual warfare and the enemy gains an ascendancy in our lives, he really does wreak havoc. The Bible says that he's come to steal, to kill. And to destroy. And so I want to look at chapter one, and I want to look at a a woman called Naomi and her family, not predominantly Ruth, even though I've just mentioned her. But and I want to see and tie it in with the consequences and with the um, the reality of what happens to us when we continually disobey the Lord, and how these things can play out in our lives. So let's look. We'll read, we'll read chapter 1, actually, and then we'll, we'll go through some aspects of it. Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Emelech. There you go. I hate these Hebrew names. They always give me a get me. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Shilon, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the, two, uh, of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah. The other name was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then Marlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, "Go, return each of you to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Then the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband." So she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will, re- uh, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb um, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear two sons, would you wait for them till they were all grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? Know, my daughters, for it grieves me very much that your stakes, for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth said, entreat me, do not, uh, entreat me not to leave you. Or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she could not be, she was determined to go with her. She stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem and all the city was excited because of them and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, as I said, we're just going to look at aspects here, but I want to paint the picture For us, because it tells us again about the consequences, but it tells us about a great God. And so, Scripture starts. It says, "Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land—a literal famine. And so, there is no bread. There is nothing to eat. uh, There's—it's food is scarce. This is the nature. This is the condition of the of the nation." And obviously, if we understand Scripture, when we talk about a famine, we understand that this is a result of God's chastisement that is upon the nation for their disobedience. That's why they're not fruitful. That's not why they're not abounding. This is why they find themselves in the famine in the land. And what is interesting, uh, it's, uh, it, uh, we, we see this, that there's no, there's no bread, well, in fact, I'll explain that in a minute. But in, in saying that, I just wanted to read Amos uh, chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, this is Amos, and he's speaking prophetically. But the point is, is that when we talk about there being a famine in terms of, of, of bread and in terms of food, in the literal sense, spiritually speaking, we're talking about a famine that is uh, where it's not of bread, it's not of water, but it is of God's word. And that's why that's exactly what was happening. That's why in, in, um, in Samuel it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation of God. And so um, this, this was the, the, the climate. And so this was the the situation. Now, isn't it interesting? In verse 1, there's no mention of any names at this point, but only the context of what is happening and what's going on. So you have this issue. Now, when it talks about a famine in the land, and the reason why we talk about bread, because the word, it says, when judges ruled and there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is symbolic because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so therefore, when it talks about a, a famine, where there's supposed to be bread and the bread of life and where there's supposed to be sustenance, there's nothing. There's a famine that is in the land. So the house of bread has no bread. And, uh, and as a result of that, this is why there's, the circumstances are playing out uh, as they are. But again, you have no names. You're just told that there is a, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah. And Judah is interesting because this in Scripture means praise, the word Judah. So we're gonna, we're gonna, if we're going to capture what's going on and play out, we're going to have to identify some of these things. This is why I'm make, making a, an emphasis. So you have Bethlehem, which means house of bread. You have Judah, which means um, praise. And they went to dwell... In the country of Moab. I mean, Bethlehem's the the house of bread. I mean, if there's anything of any fullness, this is where it needs to be. And yet now they're picking themselves up, this man, and he's gone to dwell in the country of Moab. And he's taken his wife and his two sons. And so clearly something is going on here. Because really, he should not be travelling to Moab. Despite the circumstances even. This is, but this is what he's doing. He's thinking, according to the natural mind, he says, listen, we need to feed the family, so we need to go down the Moab. But you see, if you go outside of the house of bread, outside of God's provision, outside of God's blessing, even if there is a famine and you act in this manner, you're, you're putting yourself in severe trouble. And this is disobedience. Moab will be a picture of the world in which we, you know what, I can't get what I need from God's house and from God's word and the sustenance and the provision. You know what, I'm just going to take some matters into my own hands and so we'll just do what I can do and to make my way out in the world and as we mingle and we begin to compromise and as we begin to give ourselves so that we can uh, uh, have success and provide and, and prosper, but to the exclusion because we've just forsaken the house of bread or the bread of life in this case. Jesus Christ. And so you're picking up here this aspect. And so here's Imelech. He's saying that God is not enough and we need to look to the world for our provision. And, this, and it's in this context that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, you know, this seems logical. This seems rational. I mean, there's a famine. What else can we do? I mean, we can't just wait here and humble ourselves before God and repent and ask God to help us. We need to take some matters into our own hands. So we'll just do what's right in our own eyes because this is, this is survival. But you can see this is, not, this is not right. You see, when we turn our back on God, the enemy rejoices. And so it's in this context that verse 2 begins to introduce us to the names of these characters. Uh, you know, there's a man, he has a wife, he has two sons, Bethlehem in Judah. So it builds on it a little bit further and it begins to tell us uh, the name of the man was, uh, verse 2, the name of the man was El- Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion, Eph- Eph- Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, What does verse 2 tell us that's separate from verse 1? Sounds the same, doesn't it? Isn't it just repeating itself? No, because it's given us some names now. And when you look at those names, it begins to paint a picture of what is going on. And that's why I'm making the emphasis. For example, the word Elimelech means God is king. That's what the name means. God is king. Then you have his wife and her name is Naomi. And Naomi means pleasant. She's, she's meant to be uh, a pleasant, cheerful, loving, happy woman. And yet, this is what characterises these two individuals. But you see, they, uh, they have two sons. So they call the name of one, Mullen, which means, listen, sickly. And Chilion, which means Consumption. Right? Now think about that. Let's call our son Sickly. Let's call, him, uh, let's call the other one uh, Consumption. Remember, because names in Hebrew mean something, right? And so they tell us uh, this is how the Bible speaks to us and communicates. And so, uh, and th- th- they've come out of a place, not only are they living in Judah, in Bethlehem, the house of bread, Judah, the house of praise, but they're also Eph- Ephrathites. And that word Eph- it comes from the word Ephraim, which means fruitful. And so this is, the, this is how it's meant to be, uh, well, it's meant to be fruitful. This is where the place they're coming from. But you get a picture that Elimelech and his wife, their heart has already backslidden and departed from the Lord because when they named those children, uh, uh, Marlon and Jillian, sickly and consumption, something was terribly wrong in their hearts. And so before they picked up and went out to Moab, they were already departed from the Lord in their hearts. It, it, and that's how it always works, isn't it? Long before an individual walks away from God, there's, there's things that are playing out in their hearts long before that and we just get to see the action ultimately when it comes to fruition. But the, the, the God sees what's been transpiring in the heart and this is what we're seeing here in this particular family. And one man summarised it and he says that these names reveal the following truth. Let me read it to you. Where God is king, life is fruitful, because people can feed at the house of bread. There's no famine, so this becomes a place of praise and is pleasant. Unfortunately, the husband and wife had already slid back in heart. They had two children, whose names indicate they were not fruitful. Calling your children sickly and consumption, this expressed their heart's condition And they left the house of bread and went down to the world, Moab, to be fed. Now, doesn't that sound a whole lot more interesting than what we just read in verse 1 and 2, when you read it in that context and you draw these truths out of the scripture? And so what you're dealing with is a very sad situation. You're dealing, this is not good. And so they go out to the world, to Moab, away from the blessed uh, promised land, to dwell and, um, and their sons marry two Gentile women, which again is contrary to the law. There's constant disobedience here. And, and as a result of this, there are tragic circumstances that evolve over a 10-year period because the Bible says that uh, the husband, her, Naomi's husband dies and then her two sons die. And so after a 10-year period where they thought, you know what, let's go down the mud, let's make a life for ourselves because we're going to be blessed and we're going, to, we're going to take care of our future. There's no future. It's all gone. Her husband's dead and two boys are gone. And now the two women that they're, they've got no husbands. Naomi is heartbroken. She is a broken woman. And this is the condition that she finds herself in as a result of their actions. Now look at verse 6. It says that she arose with her daughter-in-law, or daughters-in-law, the two of them, that she might return from the country of Moab because she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. See how the scripture is communicating to us? So here it is. They've left Bethlehem, the house of bread, and uh, there's no bread because there's a famine in the land. But rather than remain there and trust God and just wait upon the Lord and call upon God and let, allow God to fulfil His work and His word, because God is faithful; He's never going to let us down. And just be faithful and hold on, hold fast in faith. But no, they sold out. And so here it is now. After all, bearing all the consequences in her life, she hears that God has visited the city of Bethlehem with uh, the house of bread with bread. Because God, obviously, is working his will and purpose, but the scripture's pointing this out. So she says, oh well, if there's bread there, I need to go back. And so this is the story. She wants to return to the house of bread. And so you, then you have the whole story of the two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, and I don't want to go into that because I want to focus on Naomi here. So Naomi, after the events that we read concerning Ruth and Orpha, she decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. So let's pick it up in verse 19. Look, now the two of them, this is Ruth, because the other one's departed. So Naomi and Ruth. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi's back. Naomi's back. You know, Naomi means pleasant, right? Pleasant Naomi, she's back. They're all excited. But listen, look at verse 20. But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And so here's Naomi. She says, don't call me pleasant. I'm not a happy woman. (laughs) Call me Mara because I am bitter. The Lord has dealt with me bitterly. And I'm a bitter woman because I have experienced the hand of the Almighty against me. And I've lost my husband. I've lost my two children. And so here I am. But don't call me pleasant because I'm not. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. Now that's really sad. But it's capturing something for us this morning. And we're beginning to see that bitterness and the outcome of bitterness in her heart is, is the result of her disobedience to God. She thought she was going to Moab and she was going to have the time of her life. She thought that in Moab they were going to make a, a, a future for themselves and everything was going to be hunky dory. And yet now she's returning back and she says, call me bitter, Mara. You see, turning our backs on God this morning gives an open door to the enemy to work havoc in our lives. And the chastisement of God's hand upon us, the Almighty, will will work against us to bring us to a place of humility and repentance and the circumstances of life over the years cause many people to become bitter before the lord i've seen this as a pastor now of 30 years i mean not pastor of 30 years a christian 30 years and just seen the nature of things and how the circumstances in people's lives and sometimes how people respond and i've seen christians be bitter i've seen christians hearts get bitter because of the pain and the suffering of life things happen church and so how this affects our soul is very, really, really important. And so the truth of the matter is, as a Christian, as we go on in the Lord, our lives are meant to become sweeter and sweeter. Yet if we become more bitter and twisted in our hearts, this is not the Lord's will. This is not what I want to say. I want to see a Christian that is constantly smiling and shining. A bit like Pastor Werner. Eh? But, or, you know, not someone that's like, you know, old as a Christian, just walking around, Mr. Grumpy Bum. Don't call me Naomi, you can call me Mara. And this can happen, I've seen it, and, and it's, 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 it's something that is not to, uh, uh, God does not want for us, but nevertheless, it's a reality in some instances, because of circumstances, and ultimately, many a times, the root. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes it can be a result of disobedience. Well, at least it is a result of unbelief. You see, Israel was to understand the bitterness of life, even as, uh, as the children of Israel, when they celebrated the Passover every year, well, as part of that, you know there was the blood and the whole issue of, of, of the Passover and the blood and the lamb. And, and that's the main feature, so to speak. But part of their Passover meal, they had to eat various uh, um, things. And one of those was bitter herbs. Because when you ate the bitter herbs, the, bit, the, the, the bitterness of those herbs would release in your mouth and you go, it's not, like, it's not like the honey where you go, mmm, give me more. It's like, let's eat the bitter herbs. It's like, I don't want to eat the bitter herbs. Now eat the bitter herbs because that, that, that bitterness in your mouth is to remind you of the bitterness of life without God. Because that's how it was for the nation of Israel in Egypt, under the slavery of Pharaoh, under the slavery of sin, so to speak, and uh, under the hand of the devil. When before we knew Christ, that's what life was like. It was bitter. And we met Christ and it became sweet. Hallelujah. And the sweetness of salvation that was manifested. But never forget where we came from the bitterness of life. Because I don't want to become, I don't want to live in, in the bitterness of life. That's a horrible place to live and to be trapped and caught in. But yet it happens. And bitterness is horrible. And seeing God's people bitter by the circumstances of life is not good. Um, The Bible tells us in Proverbs 14 verse 10, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. Naomi knew the bitterness of her life. And they they were excited that she's coming in. Good to see you, Naomi. You're welcome back. And they like got a shock when they saw her. You know, oh, that's not the Naomi I remember. She was pleasant. Now <laughs> look at her. She's a grumpy old woman, bitter. And so, the heart knows its own bitterness. Israel understood the bitterness of God as a result of their own disobedience to God as a nation when God sent them into captivity, into Babylon. In in fact, I want you to turn now because I want to touch upon a couple of these things in in Lamentations. If you go to the book of Lamentations after Jeremiah in chapter 3. So you have the prophet Jeremiah and he's prophesying during the period of uh, he's prophesying about Israel's captivity to Babylon that's coming upon the nation. And, uh, and has come upon the nation now in the book of Lamentations. That's why it's called it is a lamenting of the circumstances concerning the nation and the, what, and the captivity that they're in. Now look at verse 15. This is Jeremiah. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken, broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far, far from peace I have forgotten prosperity, and I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. Gall means bitterness, the gall of bitterness. Bitterness. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. And this is the faith. Verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They knew every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. You see, Jeremiah identifies with the bitterness. But in faith, he says, I have hope. And he talks about the nature and character of God. See, this is what happens to a lot of people that say, why did God allow it? You know, why did God allow that? Or they blame God for what they've experienced and gone through, and they get bitter before to God Himself and towards people. This is not how it should be, Church. And so, Israel and Jeremiah knew that bitterness, and the Bible, and you know, they were under the God's chastisement, the nation at that point. But you know, Hebrews eleven talks about God's uh, twelve talks about God's chastisement upon His people, whom the Lord loves. Whom he loves, he chastises. And so every son he receives, he chastises. Because he wants us to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He wants to change and transform us. His his chastisement is a demonstration of his love. And if he didn't chastise us, then the Bible says we're not his children. Because if you love your child, you discipline your child. That's what the Bible teaches. It would be a good lesson for a lot of people in the world today. And so... Here it is, but listen to what Hebrews 12 tells us about this as we read on in verse 12. It says, therefore, as a, you know, in, in relation to God's discipline, it says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people. Just stop there. Pursue peace with all people. Bitterness is really, really bad when you have bitterness also against others. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, springing up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. The scriptures telling us that not just now related to the Old Testament. But now to the, to the church, to the believer, that under God's chastisement in our lives and the way in which he deals with us as, as sons of God, that we are to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, become more pleasant and more sweeter as we are conformed to his image. But if we don't and we fail, then the Bible says, beware lest a root of bitterness creep up in your heart. Because when bitterness takes root in your heart, the harvest of that in your life is awful. And that bitterness, the Bible says, many become defiled. And so bitterness is horrible. And bitterness can come about. And we're not just talking about now our own relationship to God. People can be bitter at God. But I'm talking about bitterness in life. People, uh, we, we, I know people can suffer, people have been uh, victims, people have been hurt and people can get bitter as a result of their, their, their own sufferings that they have to endure because of others that have, have wronged them or violated them and people can grow up getting, becoming bitter and so bitterness is a horrible characteristic in the heart regardless of why it's even there. That's why the Bible tells us to forgive. Because through forgiving others, amen, as God forgives us. Thank God that he's not bitter. Imagine God being bitter. He'd be twisted. Because he'd have many things to be bitter about, but he's not. That's what Jeremiah's saying. Here's the character of God. This is what he's like. And that's my confidence and that's my hope. And so we're got to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And if God forgives us, then we have to forgive others. And in forgiving others, that's where the root of bitterness is constantly being uprooted so it can't take root in our hearts. Because if it does, it will end up defiling our lives. And so, Naomi said, call me Mara. Is your name Mara this morning? No? Praise the Lord. But let's say that there is bitterness. Let's say, how, how, how is it that we can be healed? Because the answer for bitterness, as it is for the sinner, as it is for the child of God, God can and he does make the bitter sweet. This morning. And so the question, because he's merciful, the Lord fails not, his compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God can make your life sweet. Doesn't matter what you've experienced or what has happened. Just don't let bitterness take its root. Allow God, through his grace and love, uh, to, to uproot that and heal your heart. So the question is, well, how? How? Well, the answer is the same answer, amen, that relates to the sinner and to the Christian. And it's this the cross. Of Jesus Christ. The cross. You come back to the cross. You come before the Lord and you humble yourself. You know, and I'll say, why are you saying that, Pastor Gary? Why? I'll show you why. Because you know, when God took Israel out of Egypt and and then He opened up the Red Sea and they all went through, the whole nation went through and so as and then you know they came out the other end and god closed the waters upon the whole egyptian army and so he was a nation that had just come out of slavery these they these were bitter people they knew the bitterness of life they had resentment they they were angry and thank god they were rejoicing that god was bringing such a miracle to their lives but you see the first thing god does he says we're going to deal with that bitterness and so he brings them out of Israel in Exodus chapter 15 and he brings them to a place, uh, th- three days, the Bible says, through the wilderness. So there are three days. He led them through the wilderness for three days and they were thirsty. And so God brings them to some water and the Bible says that they, had, they tasted the water and it was bitter. And they complained. And so the, the Bible says the place was called Marah. And so here it is, they come to this place of bitter, where the waters are bitter. And then they're saying, oh God, why did you bring me here? I can't drink. And so, But God's bringing them face to face with the bitterness of, of their own lives. And then Moses calls out to God and says, God, what do I do? And so the Bible says God shows Moses and he says, see that tree? Grab that tree and throw it in the water. And as Moses throws the tree into the water, the Bible says that God made the water sweet. And then all of a sudden, they drank the water and it was, it was sweet and pleasant and delicious. And then God spoke to them uh, in relation to going forward. But the point is, is what does that tree mean? What's, what's the power in the tree? The tree is symbolic of, and again, another analogy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's the cross, amen? When you look at what Jesus, he, 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 he drank the pill of bitterness. If there was anyone that could be bitter, it was Jesus who hung on that cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How? Such love. Yeah, he had every reason to be bitter, but he would not. He drank the cup of bitterness for us all. And so when we look at the cross this morning that makes life sweet, what we see is God's forgiveness in our lives, that if God, I can come to God in my sin and God will forgive me, and it is incumbent upon us, amen, to uproot all bitterness, to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Because when we as Christians hold bitterness in our heart against a brother or a sister or somebody, then it's not going to kill the other person. It's going to kill you. And bitterness will affect your life. It'll play out in your life in ways that you didn't expect or understand. And that's why we've got to deal with these things. Let rather, That which is lame, not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And every root of bitterness is plucked out because we will become defiled if we don't. And so the cross is simple. How? I, 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 or I, how do I forgive when I feel so bound because of the violation? I'm angry. Well, again, go back to the cross and come humbly at the cross and bow down and forgive and receive God's forgiveness and say, God, help me. And you can, and you can get up and drink from the waters of life. Amen. And they are sweet. That's where the answer lies this morning. Naomi is complaining. And so God this morning wants to bring deliverance. He wants to bring healing. And he can do this and will do it if we come to the cross and humble ourselves, cry out to God, confess our sin and in our brokenness before the Lord Call upon Him, and God will heal our hearts. Not only that, He can. He can. Not. I mean, um, I'm not saying He will, because that's you know, God can't control everybody's decisions. But this is where God wants to bring healing to our hearts. He wants to restore broken relationships. He wants forgiveness practice. He wants there to be sweetness again. And then the enemy is cast out, and we're spiritually healed. And so, God this morning is in the midst of brokenness. And this is what you find in the story of, of Ruth. You know, we, we, we're reading some really sad, situ- sad circumstance, a sad situation. But you see, it's not over, and God is not finished. And so Ruth means friend. And so again, uh, there's a whole story that you can read that in your, in your own time. But God is into restoring. God has a plan, amen, to uh, fulfill his plan and his purpose. And you see this throughout the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She could have been uh, bitter and said, I don't want your God. To Naomi, but yet she proclaimed. We read it in verse sixteen. Faith, and she was a friend. Ruth means friend. She was a friend of God, and so God said, "You know what? I'm taking you. I'm going to, I'm going to graft you in." And so, this is what we need. We need to have faith in the circumstances of life. And the book of Ruth is a is a wonderful book of redemption. It's rich in typology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the house of bread and how um, um, uh, Naomi, uh, Naomi said, let's go back because there's, I've heard that the, the Lord has blessed, the, blessed the, the, the city with bread. What we're dealing with is the bread of life, Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. Now. If you know, he was saying that to the, at that time, but he clarified what he meant because they thought that they were talking about literal cannibalism. You know, I'm not going to eat your flesh and drink your blood. He says, If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so, and then he said to the disciples, The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It's the word. There it is again. And so rather than a famine of the word, amen, we have the word of God. And when we feed off the word, this is where we are richly blessed and that we partake of the the, the bread of life. You know, God takes sinners. He takes his children who have sometimes messed up and disobeyed. And where the enemy has brought utter destruction and havoc, God can and does a miracle. Because that's who God is. Amen? Thank God I have, J- Jeremiah said, I, therefore I have hope. I hope not in myself, not in the circumstances, but in a God that is loving, merciful, forgiving, faithful. All the attributes that he has, that is everything he is to me. And that's where my faith lies. You know, isn't God so good? I couldn't help as I was preparing this and I just my mind turned to the prodigal son. Here's a man that said, you know the story? He said, Lord, Father, he said, give me my inheritance because I'm going to go out into Moab, so to speak. I'm going to go and squander my possessions. I want out of the house of bread here in your house and the provisions. And he goes out and he squanders his inheritance on prodigal living and, he, uh, he, uh, you know, and the Bible tells us what that entailed. And then all of a sudden he had many friends and he was living lavishly. He'd spent it on harlots and, and all kinds of pleasure. And then he had no money left. And then he found himself living in the, 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 um, the pig shed. And he, so desperate he became, he began to think about eating their food. And then he realises, what have I done? What have I done? And so in his heart, he knows his dad is a good man. So he says, you know what, I'll go back to my dad and just say, look, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just take me back as a servant. That'll be sufficient. That's good enough. I'll be a slave here. No problem. Just let me, Just feed me. it will be fine. And he goes back and the Bible says that when the father saw him, he ran towards him. And he, he put his arms around him and he wept over him. And he said, this is my son. And then he called for him and he, he put the best robe on him and he put shoes on his feet and he says, kill the fatted calf and celebrate. We're having a feast because my son was dead and he's now alive and he has been restored and he is going to be elevated back to his sonship Amen. and the blessings and all that is associated with it. And so, yeah, here it is. This is, this is how good God is. That We don't deserve that, but yet God does this for us when he reconciles and restores us in redemption and who we are in Christ Jesus. And isn't it amazing? I could picture the, that, the, uh, the prodigal. He would have had some bitterness in his heart towards himself and just been hard on himself, but yet in all that his father did, he, he would have rejoiced that he got what he didn't deserve. And yet you know the story? The older brother out there, he gets bitter. <laughs> you see? And he's like, all these years I've been here, and you didn't do any of this for me. And he gets all bitter and twisted. And, uh, you know, again, that's all symbolic of things as well. But the point being is, is that we need to rejoice and understand the nature of God and God's salvation. And God can take a sinner and he can restore, he can take a Christian. And where the locusts have eaten things away, God can restore all those years that the, that the, 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 the locusts have eaten because that's who God is. And that's what God will do with the nation of Israel. Think about it. To glorify his name. He's going to take a nation, and he has taken a nation, that deserves nothing. And he's going to give him everything because of who he is. And that's exactly where we are in Christ. And so what have we got to be bitter about? <laughs> nothing. And in spite of anything that we may endure, don't you ever get bitter in your heart? Praise the Lord. Let's leave it at that. Come to the cross if you need to. Call upon God. Say, God, I, I need to forgive. Or if there's bitterness in my heart, whatever it is. Lord, root it out and let's, let's, let's feed on, in Bethlehem this morning, in Judah, and be as an Ephra- Ephraimite and be fruitful and just feed in the house of bread. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God this morning. Lord, your word is living and powerful. Your word is spirit and life. And we've seen this, Lord, as we've examined the words of the scripture. Lord, I pray that you would speak to individuals by way of revelation. Lord, where people are at, God, maybe there is bitterness in hearts. For whatever reason, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord God, graciously move in their hearts, Lord, to uproot any bitterness of heart. And Lord, I pray your blessings would abound upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.